0: Our text this morning, which is a traditional text for Pentecost, is the Old Testament lesson from Numbers chapter 11. Now, the immediate context has Israel in the wilderness, grumbling and complaining, longing for the melons and the cucumbers and the leeks of Egypt. They're weeping, and they say, oh, that we had meat to eat, right, it's a kind of perverse nostalgia. And this kindles the Lord's anger, his just anger. Now, as for Moses, he's drained and exhausted and near despair. Listen to his despondent words. He asked the Lord, the text says, why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you? That you put the burden of all these people on me. Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on an oath to their ancestors? Right, you you probably know you're at the end of your rope when you're asking God a lot of rhetorical questions like this. (laughs) And he he says, They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden's too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, he concludes, please go ahead and kill me. So, the Lord responds to Moses and tells him, uh, take 70 elders and bring them to the tabernacle, or to the tent of meeting. And he tells Moses, he's going to take some of the spirit that's on him and give it to them. Why? Well, the text tells us, so that they might bear the burden of the people with you. So that you might not have to bear it alone. And so, our text is set against this background. Right? It is set against the background of this great need of shepherding, you know, practical help with the flock, the complaining flock, that Moses has. And that's what's in view as the text opens. So we're going to make three points. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. The promise, the freedom, and the future of the Spirit, respectively. The promise, the freedom, and the future. So, first, the promise of the Spirit, Again, this is Numbers 11, beginning of verse 24. Moses goes out. He tells the people what the Lord has said, so so they'll know he's acting on divine authority. And he brings the 70 elders, and he has them stand around the tent, the tabernacle. Now, these are the same 70 elders, or at least the same number of elders anyway, that came partway up Sinai. Right? when the law was given, when the covenant was confirmed. At that time, the Lord descended in a cloud and fire on top of Sinai, thick darkness and thunder and lightning. Sinai was a kind of mountain sanctuary. And later, what happens in the Old Testament is, when the ark ascends into Mount Zion, David tells us in Psalm 68, it's an astonishing thing that he says there. He says, Sinai is now in the sanctuary. The same God of fire and thunder and glory who descended on Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Zion itself is also a mountain sanctuary. And his tabernacle, and later the temple, they were not only mountain sanctuaries, they were new Edens. Eden was on a mountain. We know this from Ezekiel 28, for example. We also know it from the fact that rivers flowed out of Eden to water the world. So Eden is this sacred sanctuary. It was a microcosm of the whole world. So was the tabernacle. So was the temple. You can trace this theme out from Genesis to Revelation. This is why the new creation at the end of the book of Revelation is depicted as a descending garden temple. It's a heightened, it's an escalated Eden. It's the temple, the final cosmic temple to which all the other temples from Eden onward point. So here's the scene. We have 70 elders around the tabernacle, the place of worship, the microcosm of the world. And 70 also is, by the way, almost certainly a number which represents the whole world. Seven times ten, right? The, the number of perfection times the number of completion. Right, there are in Genesis chapter 10, for example, this famous text which is known as the table of the nations, there are 70 nations listed. They represent the whole post flood world. Moses has seventy elders here. Jesus sent out seventy to preach the gospel of the kingdom. So, the point here is this when you have 70 elders assembled around the tabernacle, you have something which symbolically evokes the whole world, indeed, the whole cosmos. It is into this situation that the Lord comes down in the cloud. And remember, this cloud houses his radiant. Presence. It is this cloud which descended and built this this very tabernacle when Moses was done constructing it. It is this cloud which followed Israel by day and night through the wilderness. And you'll remember when when someone like Ezekiel gets a glimpse inside of this cloud, he sees myriads of angels. He sees God high above a sapphire sea. He sees living creatures, much like John does. The cloud is heaven itself. The heavenly throne room of God projected down into Israel's history. Right? It is the earthly location of the heavenly glory of God. So, let's pull all this together. The descent of the Spirit here is done in such a way... Right, so that we might see that God's ultimate purpose is to fill the whole world with his glory. Right? To rend the veil between heaven and earth. And to transform the whole creation with his immediate burning glorious presence. Pentecost then. Pentecost is about making the church into a holy temple and ultimately about making the whole cosmos into the theater of God's immediate glory. We are not nibbling around the edges in the Christian faith. We're going after the whole thing. Death, sin, Satan, the whole cosmos. Pentecost, like the resurrection, like the ascension, points us this way. So God, in this scene, takes some of the power of the Spirit that's on Moses. And he puts it. He clothes with power from on high the 70 elders. And of course, since the Spirit is God, there's no division of the Spirit here. There's no subtraction of the Spirit when he takes some from Moses and puts it on the elders. This is like drawing fire from fire. There's no diminishing of the original flame. The spirit, like the sun, is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. And God takes the spirit, and we're told in the text, that the spirit rested on the elders. For rest is the goal of the creation. It's the goal of redemption. The king of creation has rested from his works on the seventh day, And entered his Sabbath glory. And the spirit. Is given to us. And the whole creation. To bring us. With that creation to. The eternal Sabbath rest of God. That's what this very day prefigures. Right we worship on this day. Because it's the Lord's day. The day of resurrection. The day which anticipates this eternal Sabbath day. So this atmosphere, or this scene, if you will, conditions every public worship service every Lord's Day. And having received the Spirit, then, the 70 elders, one time and one time only, they prophesy to confirm in the eyes of the people that they are divinely consecrated in their office to help Moses care for and bear the burden of the congregation. So the promised spirit, which is the heavenly glory fire of God himself, has indeed come on the 70. So the second point, then, is the freedom of the spirit. Because the text takes an interesting turn here. In verse 26, we're told that two men, Eldad and Medad, listed among the elders, for reasons unknown, they remained in the camp. They, they did not go out to the tent. <clears throat> it's strange, but they were not sinning. Right? We're not sinning because we read in the text, nevertheless, the Spirit also rested on them. And they also prophesied. Not at the tent, but out in the camp. So the Spirit bears this comprehensive witness at the tent, out in the camp with the leaders among the ordinary people, in the authorized place, in the commonplace. And now a much broader array of people know that the Spirit has been given to assist Moses. So the point to see here is that the Spirit is free. The Spirit is sovereign. And the Spirit is unhindered. And he's certainly not thwarted by our location. And so this extension indicates an outward movement of the heavenly glory. From the tabernacle, out to the congregation, eventually out to the world. In one sense, from where we stand, we we might expect this. right? Because we we know the tabernacle in the 70s symbolizes the whole cosmos. But it's unlikely that many people grasp that at the time. So the Spirit is given to these men out in the camp. And people would have seen this, many more people. And to some, it must have seemed novel, like a breach in protocol. Moses had told the people what would happen with the 70 at the tent. But this, this seems irregular. And a young man, apparently worried, figures, the leaders, the leaders can stop this. They can keep these crazy charismatics under control. So he runs out to Moses and he tells him, with, with apparently with alarm, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, right, the future leader of Israel, who the text tells us was Moses' aide since his youth. So he would have Moses' best interests in mind. Joshua speaks up. And Joshua's also alarmed. He says, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Silence them. I mean, Joshua clearly thinks this is out of order. Perhaps he thinks Moses has been disrespected. Maybe Moses' unique role as mediator has been diminished somehow or compromised. And you can see how a person would get there, right? They may be prophesying, but there is no way the Spirit has been given. Since we know the Spirit was promised by the Lord to Moses at the tent. In which case, you would view this as a kind of sacrilege. These are the kinds of reactions one often gets to the work of the Spirit. For the Spirit, it turns out, does not obey our expectations. He does not confine himself to our institutions or our procedures or our preferred methods. And it's our nature to sort of institutionalize and to organize and then think we can monopolize. But the spirit will not be caged. He's always working around or above or against or without the means that we provide. Notice in this case, he works around divinely provided means. Right, Going to the tent with the 70 is a divinely provided mean to get the the Spirit. The Spirit just works around that. You know why? Because the means that we have that are divinely provided are not always exclusive. There may be other divinely provided means. But we tend to think, well, if this is the divinely provided way to do it, this is the only way to do it. As if God couldn't have two or three other ways to do it. In any event, as we'll see, Joshua here has a kind of um, misplaced or undue respect for Moses. He's hypersensitive about Moses' dignity and glory, and thus he becomes overprotective. Right? And when you get like this, things will make you blind to the Spirit's freedom. You attach yourself to an institution or to a denomination or to certain men or certain ministries. Right? We all have this tendency to glom on. And, and Joshua's like that with Moses. He's like, Moses is the giver of the Spirit. He's the mediator. And so he becomes blind to the Spirit's freedom. So I've said this before, but let me say it again. This, this is really not a cheap throwaway point this point about the, the freedom of the Spirit always upending our expectations. Presbyterians, by nature, are, are, tend to be made a little uncomfortable with these kinds of things, I think, perhaps. At least some of us. But if the Spirit is this, the free Spirit who upends our expectations, and He is, it should keep us open-minded toward other Christians, large-hearted toward them humble about ourselves and our own tradition and its weaknesses and its failures. This is a way of of enlarging your soul so that you don't get stuck in some narrow, parochial, provincial kind of viewpoint. You need a wide-angle lens to see this. I like to tell my Reformed friends that in the 20th century, while we conservative Reformed people, all 57 of us, were arguing about this or that fine theological point... Or this or that amendment in the book of church order. God felt just fine to sweep 100 million people from around the world into the kingdom of God through the quite unreformed, charismatic, and Pentecostal movements. Never consulted me about it, I don't know about you guys. Never talked to the General Assembly, did not get a motion passed, just did it. These people, their theology is all crazy, we don't, you know, I mean, and there you go. They're all over the place. They're falling out of the sky. You have to be careful that you don't get hit by one of them. They're everywhere. Because the Spirit's free and He does whatever He wants to do. And He's full of surprises. So don't find yourself running around like a madman telling someone to stop the stuff you don't like. Right? Remember, remember the incident where John comes up to Jesus and he says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons. I mean, that's pretty cool, but they weren't doing it with us. They're casting out demons in your name, but they don't follow with us. We're always worried that some Christian somewhere is not as Christian as we are. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, don't stop them. For the one who's not against you is for you. If they're not openly opposing you, consider them family. What family doesn't have a few friends' members in it? Consider them family, colleagues in Christ. We need more Catholicity, less partisan cheerleading. Right? Rather, we should be like Paul. Here's Paul's position on spiteful, ill-motivated preachers. He says this, Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, and others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, he says, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. In other words, these people are going around preaching the gospel because they want to undermine my authority. Right? We would bring charges against these people. What then, Paul says? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in, in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I will rejoice. Right? That's the model. Err on the side of charity. Trust the Spirit to be God. God. He'll sort this stuff out in due time. So that's the freedom. And the third point then is the future of the spirit. It turns out that Moses, he does not see matters the way the young man or Joshua see them. Right? Quite the contrary. He replies to, remember Joshua says, stop them. And Moses says to Joshua, are you jealous for my sake? What are, you, what are, you trying to, are you trying to protect my interests here or something? Again, there's this hint that Joshua thought only Moses could give the Spirit. I mean, after all, he's the mediator. It's just as if Moses is saying, look, Joshua, the Spirit is not mine. Yes, I, in some sense, I mediated the Spirit at the tent, but I am not God. The Spirit blows where it wills. So your criticism of these men in the camp, Joshua, is misplaced. It's earnest, I'm sure. It's sincere. But it is misplaced. And then Moses makes this extraordinary statement. And this is why this is a Pentecost text. It's why it's in the lectionary for Pentecost. And this this, it's kind of a public wish, but it's basically a prayer. He prays here. And it shows his deep need of help. He needs help but it also shows his deep humility. He says this, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them all. Right? In, in contrast to like the partisan, rigid Joshua, and too often us, who want to prescribe the channels in which the spirit can flow, Moses demonstrates legitimate Catholicity, right? legitimate largeness of soul and spirit. Eldad and Medad are prophesying? Would to God that every last one, he says, of the Lord's people, sons and daughters, men and women, young and old, I wish, I wish they were all prophets. Well, that would be chaos. We have no provision for that in the BCO. You can't have women running around prophesying Moses. Take it easy. What? It's an extraordinary sentiment. I want everybody to start prophesying. I want the Spirit to be poured out on them all. To to paraphrase, he anticipates Paul in the New Testament who says it's all the same Spirit and it's all gifting from the same Lord. Moses sees this as, as a way to edify and beautify the church. Indeed, in this case, it's first and foremost, get this now, a way to ease his burden. He seems to be thinking like this. Look, the more gifts the more prophetic voices in the congregation, the more glory, heavenly glory, resting on the saints, the easier the burden of leadership is. Not harder. It's harder to control everything and make everybody line up in the right order. This would be easier, Moses says. There's two guys out there prophesying. I wish there were 200,000. He doesn't want the whole role of leadership on his own shoulders. He's not interested in any way in control. This is a deep act of humility, is it not? He is willing, Moses is, happy to welcome the humblest man or the lowliest maiden in Israel as his co-worker should they receive the Spirit. Right? There are not a lot of men, even today, with this kind of ethos. This is true ecumenism, a true seeking of the good, the unity of the worldwide church. May the Spirit be poured out, the chosen mediator prays, on all of God's people. Remember, to ask for the Spirit here is to ask for prophecy, the gift of prophecy. He's not saying, I need more people with the gift of helps or, or administration, as wonderful as they are. The gift in view here is the gift of prophesying. And so in this, what Moses is doing is he's anticipating... This is often, I think, overlooked on Pentecost. Everybody kind of knows the connection between Peter's sermon and the prophet Joel. But the connection starts here in Numbers 11. Moses is anticipating Joel, who said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your, young men, your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Right? And that text from Joel, right, we heard it read this morning from the book of Acts. It's cited by Peter at Pentecost. So here's the thread, in case you may have lost it. Here's the thread, right? It runs from Moses' prayer to Joel's prophetic vision to Pentecost to Peter's sermon. To what end? To what end? To the end that you, every last one of you, male and female, young and old, would be filled with the Spirit and equipped or gifted for ministry. The whole church is to be a prophetic people in the Spirit, according to Moses, according to Joel, and according to Peter. Christ has ascended, and he's poured out the Spirit, and that means all of you, male and female, are anointed, prophets, priests, and kings, with full sanctuary access. And thus, like the 70 elders, and like Eldad and Medad, we can all together bear the burdens of caring for the flock. Right? Bear one another's burdens, Paul says, in Galatians. And to do that requires the Pentecostal fire. So Moses' prayer has been answered at Pentecost. And it continues to be answered as we pray for the infilling of the Spirit. You, individually and collectively, you all are the tent, the tabernacle, the dwelling place, the living, growing temple of the Holy Spirit. And the beauty of Pentecost is this. God is intent on filling you with His glory. With his godness. And more than that, and this goes back to the beginning now. More than that. Since the temple is a microcosm of the world, Pentecost becomes a missionary summons. Right? We are laying aside grumbling and complaining to go out in the power and in the rest of the spirit and expand the temple. Right, bringing others in through the gospel, shepherding them, caring for them, discipling them, to the end that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Right, That the whole creation, the heavens and the earth, would be made new and would become a cosmic temple. Think of it this way. You're a temple as an individual, we're a temple as a body, and the cosmos is a temple. And they are all destined to be irradiated and flooded with the Pentecostal glory of God. Pentecost has come. Go forth. Expand the holy temple to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen.